If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be back in Acts, our study in this verse-by-verse exposition of this incredible book here in the New Testament. Acts chapter 18 is where we'll be this morning, and we're going to pick up right where we left off before Christmas in verse 18. So Acts 18, 18 through 28, and the title for this morning's sermon is Taking Apollos Aside taking Apollos aside, and I think you'll get the gist of that as we read the text and jump into our time together this morning. Luke writes in Acts 18, 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncrae, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you, if God wills, and set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went on one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray that you would allow us to see in this text truths from your word that would transform us into being more faithful Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, who would look to you who would seek to encourage one another and that we would be faithfully expositing, teaching, proclaiming, and living out your word day by day. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes God chooses the humble to bring about a growth in your life. He chooses humble means sometimes to bring about great victory. God chose Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. God chose David to slay Goliath. God sent Jesus to the earth to be born in a stable and then to inaugurate the new covenant in his blood. And throughout church history, God has continued to use lowly things of the world to shame the wise. And it was in the mid-1500s that God chose a nobody to help bring conversion to a somebody. Most of us are familiar with the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which officially began with Martin Luther in 1517. There were others like Zwingli and Calvin who God used to take the Reformation to new heights. The truce of the Reformation then spread to England, where a young student by the name of Bilney had a lasting impact on a prominent Roman Catholic bishop named Hugh Latimer. 
Bilney was known as Little Bilney because he was short. He did not have much education. No one thought very much of him because not that many people knew him. But Bilney was converted by the gospel and wondered how it might be that it would be possible for him to bring this gospel to Hugh Latimer. Bilney thought Latimer would be a tremendous force for the Reformation in England if he could just hear the gospel. So Bilney came up with a plan, and he prayed that God would use this plan, and the plan was this, like all the priests in the Roman Catholic Church, Latimer was required to hear from those who wanted to make confession of their sins. And so one day, when Latimer was serving in the church, Bilney went up to him, and he tucked at his sleeve and asked Latimer to hear his confession. Latimer said he would. So they went into the confessional, and Bilney there confessed the gospel to him. He spoke of how he was a wretched sinner and how it was impossible for his sins to be forgiven by keeping the sacraments, how Jesus had died for him, and how by faith alone, in Christ alone, that that righteousness of Christ had been imputed to his account apart from any good works. That is what he confessed to Hugh Latimer in the confessional that day. And that was an instrument that God used to bring Latimer to faith in Christ. This is what Latimer later said about that day. Quote, I learned more by his confession than before in many years. From that time forward, I began to smell the word of God and forsook the school doctors and such fooleries. In his book, Five English Reformers, J.C. Ryle writes that Hugh Latimer was not a man to do anything by halves. As soon as he ceased to be a zealous papist, he began at once to be a zealous Protestant. And he gave himself up, body, soul, and mind, to the work of doing good. He He visited in Bilney's company the sick and prisoners. He commenced preaching in the university pulpits in a style hitherto unknown in Cambridge and soon became famous as one of the most striking and powerful preachers of his day. Eventually, both men were burned at the stake for their undying commitment to Christ. Bilney was burned as a martyr in Norwich and Latimer who in 1555 spoke these famous words when he was burned at the stake with Nicholas Ridley. Here's what he said, Latimer said, Be brave, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by the grace of God, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. God used this man, Bilney, who we've never heard of till this morning, to help bring about the conversion of Hugh Latimer, who was a great voice for Christ and for the Reformation. And something, in a smaller sense, happened in in the case of Apollos. Maybe Apollos wasn't at the forefront of a full Reformation, but he was a faithful instrument that God used. And could it be that when Apollos came to Ephesus, as we read in our text this morning, that Priscilla and Aquila went to hear him and then potentially said to one another, this is a very able man, but he seems to be ignorant of the whole story of Christ and of true conversion power. You remember the text said he had only heard of the, of the baptism of John and didn't yet hear the full gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so maybe Aquila and Priscilla looked at each other in that moment after the service and said, who do you suppose, or what do you suppose that we should do? 
Priscilla could have suggested, let's, let's have him over for dinner. And Aquila could have replied, that's a great idea. Maybe there we can share more with him. And my friends, that's what true discipleship is really all about. It's about us as the body of Christ, strengthening each other in the word day by day with our lives and by our conversations. And true evangelism and discipleship are about having the boldness to speak the truth in love, knowing that the power comes from God to change a life at any moment. You don't have to know everything in order to be effective. You don't have to have a degree from the master's university or from seminary in order to make a difference. What you have to have is a heart that's hungry for the conversion of the lost. What you need is a passion to see people walk in the light of Christ. What we all need is the courage to risk our own reputation, to take a stand for the gospel, and become that same instrument in the Redeemer's hands to bring others to the foot of the cross. And this morning, I want to teach you a little bit from this passage about the origin of the church of Ephesus. And I want you to see how God used this amazing church to make a difference in their community, to disciple people in their own congregation, and then to send out missionaries who were equipped with a more accurate knowledge of the truth to go and to share Christ around the world. And so this morning, we'll start by simply examining the lives of Paul and Apollos, two major people there that were working in Ephesus. And so the first part of our sermon, two headings today, the ministry of Paul, we'll see that in verses 18 through 23, and then the maturing of Apollos, verses 24 through 28. Let's start with number one, the ministry of Paul, and your first blank at this time says, his time in Corinth. His time in Corinth, verse 18, says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, and at Syncharia he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. We're talking about his time in Corinth because this verse is referring to the time that Paul spent in Corinth. In fact, look back at verse 1 of the same chapter, chapter 18. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So really from verses 1 all the way through this verse, verse 18, is primarily talking about what Paul experienced in his mission there in Corinth. And it was while he was in Corinth that Paul spent significant time, and we were introduced to this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who were the tent makers by trade. Remember, it was Aquila and Priscilla that made an incredible husband and wife team. And then we read in chapter 18 about how when Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth from Macedonia, at that time, Paul was solely occupied with the word and he was able to devote all of his time and his energy to proclaiming to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. This means that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the one who was prophesied of from old that had come to save his people from their sins. But the Jews as a whole rejected the message of the gospel, so Paul declared in this passage that he would now go to the Gentiles. And while many in Corinth opposed and reviled the gospel, there were a few converts. There in verses 7 and 8, we read about how Titius Justus and Crispus, they both came to Christ. And then as Paul continued his mission there, he had a vision from the Lord. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. 
And so this shows that even Paul, we discuss, could struggle with fear. Even Paul, a man of great courage and who was outspoken for the gospel at times, needed encouragement. And so God told him in that vision, do not be afraid. Do not stop speaking. Do not be silent. And even through ongoing persecution, Paul continued to be faithful in his ministry and in his calling. And so it was while he was in Corinth that Paul continued to proclaim Christ. He preached the gospel. He reasoned from the scriptures. He persuaded with his speech. And he, and he told the men and women there to repent and to put their faith in Christ all along, leaving the results up to God. We discussed how Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half. He spent much time preaching the word, planting a church, and then also discipling Priscilla and Aquila, who are now going to come with him to Ephesus. And so it was after this, back to verse 18, after this, we just kind of summarized verses 1 through 17, after his time in Corinth, Paul left Corinth, and the verse 18 says that he set sail for Syria, and he had Priscilla and Aquila with him, and the church in Corinth was in the hands of the brothers there, Gaius, Sosthenes, Stephanus, and Crispus, and so Paul then leaves there. He goes to Sincrae, which is the eastern port of Corinth, and it was from there that we learned that Paul, notice this interesting tidbit here, that Paul cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, something about that should cause you to stop and be like, wait a second, I, I think I've heard something about a vow, had something to do with hair. What vow had he been under? Well, he had been under the Nazarite vow. Paul had been under the Nazarite vow, and the Nazarite vow was usually made in gratitude to God for gracious blessing or for deliverance. And the Nazarite vow starts back in Numbers chapter 6. Why don't you turn there with me, if you will, just a quick refresher, because we haven't spent a lot of time talking about what exactly was the Nazarite vow, but God himself inaugurated the Nazarite vow, saying to Moses in Numbers chapter 6, verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. So that's number one, in order to take the Nazarite vow, no grape products, okay? No wine, no jam, no nothing, no raisins. You don't touch the grapes, okay? The second thing he's supposed to do, verse four, in the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, even the seeds of the skins, all the days of his vow of, uh, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head, until it is completed, for what separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair, of his head, grow long. And so we see that there in Numbers chapter 6. We know this is an Old Testament opportunity for someone who wants to make a special vow where they separate themselves. They touch no grapes or grape products. Other places, it's about Samson, we read about him not touching anything that was dead, and of course, then again, not cutting his hair. 
And it wasn't always intended to be lifelong. It was oftentimes used for a specific period of time, maybe for a month or so, though we do see three lifelong Nazarite vows in Scripture. I mentioned the first of them to you already was Samson. If you want to see it there, turn to Judges 13.5. So Samson's the first person that we know of who took this vow, and he took it for his entire life. Judges 13.5 says, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the land of the Philistines. And so we know that Samson was far from perfect, but God gave him the supernatural strength to lift the gates of Gaza and to take them to the top of the hill in front of Hebron. God gave Samson supernatural strength to kill a lion with his own hands, to slay a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, and to push down the great house of the Philistines when he pushed those two pillars, killing more people in his death than he had killed in his life. And Samson, while under the Nazarite vow, was one of God's appointed judges to deliver Israel from their enemies. The second example of one who was under a Nazarite vow for life was Samuel. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. It's the second example of a lifelong Nazarite vow. Listen to what, what Hannah says in 1 Samuel 1, 11, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And then what does it say? And no razor shall touch his head. Again, an indication of the Nazarite vow. Samuel was a godly prophet who pointed the nation of Israel to God, who anointed kings, who was willing to confront evil wherever he saw it. The third person who took the Nazarite vow would be John the Baptist. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 15, Luke 1, 15, John the Baptist. This is now someone in the New Testament. The, the angel told Zechariah when he was in the temple that he and Elizabeth would bear a son and that his name shall be called John. And then in Luke 1, 15, it says, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Of course, we know that John the Baptist is the one who was to prepare the way for the Lord. He was the voice crying out in the wilderness. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Mark chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says that John was clothed with a with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Jesus said this about John the Baptist, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so we can't help but to think about these three lifelong Nazarite vow takers, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist were all three Nazarites for life. And in all three cases, it was their mother who committed them to the Lord in this way. In all three cases, it was for life. And in all three cases, the mother had been barren and God had given her a child as a special gift. And that child was to be a special judge or prophet or deliverer of God's people. 
The vow for Paul, in contrast, was not a lifelong vow. It was for a specific time period. Paul probably took the Nazarite vow out of his gratitude toward God for the grace that had been given to him throughout his second missionary journey, even while he was there for 18 months in Corinth. And Paul, for Paul, this Nazarite vow was just simply a special pledge of separation and devotion to God. Paul uses that language in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And so Paul, when he took the Nazarite vow, he's not struggling with legalism. He just wanted to separate himself in special service and devotion to the Lord. And in a world where there is sometimes very little separation between the church and the world, it is important for us to remember that God has called us to be set apart. And I'm not saying that you have to take the Nazarite vow this morning. I'm not even saying you have to avoid drinking wine this morning. I know some of you did bringing in the new year. All right, so I'm not, that's not the point of what I'm saying. The point of what I'm saying is we're called to be separate. If nothing else, it's just a time to devote ourselves to be separate from the world. You and I are to be different than the world in how we talk and in how we dress and in how we act. You should be different from the world in your choice of entertainment and in your choice of music. You should be different from the world in how you spend your time and in how you spend your money. You should have a, a difference about you. You have a different nature. You have a different calling. You have a different inheritance than the world. And in whatever stage you are in in your Christian journey, you must be, to some degree, set apart. May God help you this morning just to think, even as we just read that, like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to take the Nazarite vow, and it's too late to do it for life, but I do want to be set apart as unto the Lord. I do want people to sometimes ask, hey, why do you do this? Why do you not do that? Why do you talk this way? Why do you spend your time this way? They ought to see a difference in you. And that's what Paul's doing. He was singularly devoted to Christ. And may we find our satisfaction and our joy and our drive this morning to say, you know what? I want to be devoted to Christ. I don't want to be like the world. I don't want to be drawn to the world. I want to come back to Christ and live for him. I think that's what Paul is doing when he's taking this vow. And then we see how Paul is now leaving Corinth and heading to Ephesus. That's your next blank there, his time in Corinth and now his time in Ephesus, verses 19 through 21. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul, verses 19 to 20, he's in Ephesus. Ephesus, by the way, was, was by far the most prominent of all the cities of Asia Minor, what we know as present-day Turkey, mainly because of its strategic location. The city was positioned on the Caister River, which was only about three miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. This enabled Ephesus to become a primary harbor for Asia, Asia Minor. And those disembarking at the harbor traveled along a magnificent, wide, column-lined road called the Arcadian Way that led to the center of the city. 
Ephesus was known for its great structures. The city became equipped with baths, gymnasiums, a stadium for gladiators and wild animals and civic and commercial centers, as well as a theater and temple of Diana or Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was a massive structure longer than a football field, some 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, had 127 columns, 60 feet high, six feet in diameter, these columns. It was built of marble, cypress wood, paneling, and cedar roof beams. It was the largest known building of the ancient world. And with a temple like this, Ephesus was also the center of pagan worship. On the inside, Pagan worship flourished with all of its temple prostitution, the grossest perversions, and drunkenness. The temple even provided a haven for criminals as they were granted amnesty while worshiping there. As businessmen flocked to participate in the lewd practices of this cesspool, the economy grew even stronger. And not only was Ephesus the primary harbor of Asia Minor, but it was also standing at the crossroads of travel by land. There were four major highways that intersected in this metropolis, bringing businessmen and merchants from the important cities of the Roman provinces. And because of all of this, the people of Ephesus were very culturally advanced. They had all the amenities of a cosmopolitan city, sports, arts, drama, and pageantry. It is estimated that its population at the time was between a quarter of a million to half a million people. And when Paul arrived in Ephesus, as verse 19 discusses here through 21, he continued his strategy of beginning. Even the, the, the city was, was, was a robust metropolis of all kinds of secular cultural things going on. He did what he was known to do. He went to the synagogue and he began to reason with the Jews from the scripture. As he had done time and time before, he wanted to show the Jews from the Old Testament that the prophecies pointing to the Messiah had all come true in Jesus. He knew that Jesus could pierce the culture of Ephesus. He knew that his job was to bring Christ to this city. And what's amazing about this is in verse 20, it says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period. What had happened to Paul so far on his missionary journey? Everywhere he went, they ran him out of town. They were like, get out of here. And this city is saying, hey, can you stay longer? It's an amazing kind of turn here of events where they actually begged Paul, could he stay longer to continue his ministry there? It was definitely an encouraging sign. But notice verse 21 says that he took leave of them and he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. This is not the first time that we read something like this. Paul saying, if God wills. For example, 1 Corinthians 4.19, Paul says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16.7, for I do not want to see from now what, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to send some time, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So 1 Corinthians 4.19, 1 Corinthians 16.7, he uses that same terminology, if the Lord allows, if God permits. And this is just a good reminder for us not to presume upon the Lord that Paul wanted to come back to Ephesus, but he knew that God was in control of his timing. Just like James 4, 14 and 15 says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
for you are but a, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Again, Paul's just reminding us with this terminology that we must learn to trust God for our future. We must learn to trust God for our future ministry appointments. We gotta trust that God's sovereign over all of the opportunities that we have in life. And it appears that, that Priscilla and Aquila, who had come with Paul to Corinth, stayed in Ephesus, while Paul singularly leaves Ephesus and he's heading back to Jerusalem and then we'll see also to Antioch. So that moves us to verse 22, your next blank, his time in Caesarea, Jerusalem, and Antioch. When he landed, so he's setting sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then he went down to Antioch. So I'm saying out of verse 22, we see Caesarea. When it, the text says he went up, I believe that means he went up to Jerusalem. Even though the text doesn't specifically say Jerusalem, the strong inference here is that it was Jerusalem. In fact, that's what so many verses say, that he went up, oftentimes was referring to approaching Jerusalem, and the Bible will say he went up to Jerusalem. For example, in Acts 11.2, it says, so Peter went up to Jerusalem. Again, in Acts 21.15, after those days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. So I'm telling you, there's a strong inference that he went to Caesarea, which is on the coast of Israel. He went to Jerusalem, and then he went up to, uh, to Antioch. And so uh, the other reason I would believe that is because verse 22 says, and he greeted the church. Verse 22, again, it says that he went up and greeted the church. Well, what church are we talking about? We're talking about the church of Jerusalem, the most prominent church, the original church. It was the church of the apostles. It was the church that was providing clarity on difficult issues like circumcision and eating meat, sacrifice to idols that we read about from Acts 15. And so I believe it was after he greeted the church of Jerusalem that Paul then went down to Antioch. He went down geographically. Antioch was actually north and a little bit east of, of Jerusalem. So he went down to Antioch, which of course was his sending church. And this marks the end of Paul's second missionary journey. We're not sure exactly how long he was in Antioch, but we get the feeling here that he was here for several weeks or several months at the most. And then next we see, in your next blank, his time in Galatia and Phrygia. Verse 23, this is now the beginning of his third missionary journey. So he wrapped up the second missionary journey. Remember when we read about the end of the first missionary journey, he stayed a while, he talked a while, he gave a full report of all that God had done, and this, this ending of the second journey doesn't include that much time and explanation of all that happened, because verse 23 says, after spending some time there, he departed and went up from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the churches. So 22 marks the end of the second missionary journey, 23 begins the beginning of the third missionary journey, and he went to Galatia and and Phrygia. This verse marks the, the beginning of this journey, and it's actually a return trip to the same areas where Paul had been two times before. He goes back to the same area. There's one evangelist who has been known for saying that no one deserves to hear the gospel twice until everyone who has had, everyone has had a chance to receive the gospel once. So that's a Famous evangelist. I don't even know who said it. I've just heard that throughout my life and I've read it in a couple places. But an evangelist said, no one deserves to hear the gospel twice 
until everyone has heard the gospel once. Well, Paul didn't follow that strategy. He went to the same places again and again and again. This is the third time that he had been in the area of Galatia and Phrygia, and it was in order to strengthen the disciples. Jesus didn't even go into all the world. Jesus was primarily in Israel as well as in a few Gentile areas. Paul certainly went into more Gentile areas in these three missionary journeys, but there's no discussion here of him going outside of the Roman Empire. There's no discussion of him traveling deep down into Africa or further east into Asia proper. Paul was content and compelled by the Spirit of God to focus on strengthening and growing and developing the churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey. I just think it's interesting to note that. This is a commitment to discipleship. This is a commitment to teach the Bible again and again and again to the same people, the same truths, so they might grow and mature. And as they grow and mature, it's trusted that they'll be good stewards of what God's given them and that they too will begin to send out missionaries as well. But Paul's focus here on these three missionary journeys were essentially in the same area again and again and again. Well, now that we've seen the ministry of Paul, let's move on now to the maturing of Apollos, verses 24 through 28. Your first blank says, the preparation for ministry. The preparation for ministry, and then we'll see three little points under this one, and it's number one, your next blank, number one, the sophisticated training of Apollos. The sophisticated training of Apollos. Look at verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. We're talking first about the sophisticated training that Apollos had. These verses tell us about Apollos, and Apollos is his own person. He's different. Sometimes he gets confused with Aquila and Priscilla because they're both in the same place. They both minister with Paul. Apollos and Aquila sound similar. So let me just make sure you understand there's quite a difference between the ministry of Apollos and the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla were Jews. Apollos was a Gentile. Aquila and Priscilla were a married couple. Apollos was single. They were a working couple. He was an intellectual. They came from Rome, the capital of the empire. He came from Alexandria in Egypt. And Alexandria was known as the center of learning, similar to Athens, but even more serious in its scholarship. Alexandria at the time was the city of Philo, the famous Jewish philosopher who was well-versed not only in Greek philosophy of the day, but also in the Old Testament and who interpreted much of the Old Testament in Greek terms. Aquila and Priscilla were blue-collar missionaries, you could say. They had their tent-making itinerant ministry. They didn't have a formal education theologically, so they were blue-collar missionaries, while Apollos was a white-collar scholar. This guy was a scholar well-trained in the Alexandrian schools. And so not only did he possess a sophisticated training, but he also had, your second blank, a strong ability. Look at the strong ability of Apollos. Again, it says there in 24 that he's an eloquent man, that he's competent in the scriptures, that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord uh, to some degree. And so again, we're talking about Apollos, He had been to school. He was a very learned man. 
He had acquired the elite learning of his day. He had gone through his undergraduate and grad school of his day. He, he, in fact, he graduated from the Ivy League universities and his credentials were impressive. He was competent in the scriptures. This, this word competent means that he was able. It means that he was capable. It, it means that he was powerful. In fact, the NASB translate this word competent as mighty. It says Apollo was mighty in the scriptures. And this reference to the scriptures is not to the New Testament scriptures, but to the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament was entirely new, and most likely the letters of the New Testament had not yet circulated in Alexandria up to this time. And so while we read that he was instructed in the way of the Lord, you see that there at the beginning of verse 25, so you may think, oh, well, he's good to go. This, this is a reference where it says it restruct, instructed in the way of the Lord. Some commentators say this means that he's instructed in the way of Jehovah, but not necessarily instructed to the way of Jesus. So anytime the passage uses the Lord, kurios, sometimes it refers to God the Father, sometimes it's referring to Jesus as the Lord. So many of the commentaries say he's better instructed in God of the Old Testament scriptures than he was in the fullness of Christ. And we'll see that as we continue to unpack this passage here. He did, however, speak with fervor. He spoke with, with this great um, uh, this great, you know, passion. The, the word fervor, in fact, means to be stirred up emotionally. It, it means to be enthusiastic. It means to be excited. It, it means to be on fire. Um, Romans twelve eleven says, "Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord." And this is the gift that Apollos had. He had the gift of communicating. He could proclaim truths from God's word with power and with persuasion. He, he was eloquent. He was articulate. He was an ardent defender of the God of Israel. He even taught accurately the things that he did know concerning Jesus. Apparently, he knew of Jesus. He just didn't know Jesus. He, he knew some of the basic facts of Jesus, but he didn't know the full effect of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this leads us to number three, the surprising inadequacy of Apollos, there's an inadequacy here, and that's a surprise. Verse 25, again, he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Think more God of the Old Testament. He was fervent in spirit. He taught accurately what he did know concerning the things of Jesus. But notice verse 25 is where we're getting the full picture here. Though he knew only the baptism of John. So you should just stop there and be like, uh-oh, he hasn't heard the full story of Christ yet. He's only heard about John the Baptist's testimony pointing to Christ, knowing that Christ was now coming on the scene, but apparently had not been filled in on all the details. He knew only the baptism of John. And so no matter how learned Apollos was, no matter how gifted of a speaker he had become, without the whole story, Apollos was still lacking. He knew only about the baptism of John. This was a baptism of repentance of the old covenant Jew to repent of their pride and legalism to prepare them for the coming Savior. Mark 1, 5 says all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, to John the Baptist, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So this is where Apollos is. He's kind of still at that state 
Acts 13.24 says, Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And we'll look into this more next week, but go ahead and glance in chapter 19, verses 3 through 5. Look at Acts 19, 3 through 5. And he said, this is when Paul gets back to that area of Ephesus. He says, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you kind of get the idea here. There's a progression of information. There's a progression of divine revelation. There's a progression of the preaching of Christ and him crucified. And this is where Apollos was. Apollos had had some good information, was doing a good job with what he had, but God had sent John to prepare the nation of Israel for their Messiah. John's baptism, again, was a baptism of preparation. Those who were baptized were to look forward to the coming Messiah. John also had announced a future baptism of the Holy Spirit, which took place on the day of Pentecost. And Apollos knew about these promises, but he did not know about their fulfillment. He knew the promises and it was coming, but he did not know that these, so many of these had already been fulfilled. This was only preparation for the real thing. So Apollos has a lot going for him. He just needs the whole story, right? Apollos needed an introduction to the new covenant. He, he must not even have known of the day of Pentecost of Acts chapter two. And so Apollos has the passion, but he lacked the full power of the gospel. Again, imagine knowing part, but not knowing the whole story. That's like watching a trailer to a film and it doesn't give away maybe the ending. And you think you know what's gonna happen, and then somewhere in the film, it takes a twist and it ends differently than you want. That, you don't really know until you watch the movie. That, that would be like going to the game and you watch all the warm-ups and you feel like, I think this team's going to beat that team because these athletes look bigger, stronger, and you leave. And then later you hear the score was, well, the other team actually whipped them because you didn't really know. It, it, it does, it's not enough just to give all the introductory material. You got to know the end story. Since I give too many sports illustrations, that, that's, like, that's like prepping a meal a fine meal for the maybe the ladies. I know some guys cook, but imagine preparing a gourmet meal, but you never stick the pan into the oven and you never enjoy the delicious meal once it's completed. And you just, you think it's gonna taste good, but if you've never tasted it, aren't you missing out? And that's exactly what Apollos was like. He had a lot of promise, a lot of poise, a lot of opportunity, but he's falling a little bit short. If the full Christ is lacking in our preaching, then we are inadequate. If Christ is not the focus of our preaching, then we are incompetent. If Christ is not the thrust of our preaching, then we will quickly become distracted, discouraged, and disillusioned with our Christian walk. A sermon without Christ is like preaching the law with no perfect law fulfiller. A sermon without Christ is like preaching sin without a sin sacrifice. A sermon without Christ is like preaching judgment without pointing to the mercy giver. We must preach Christ and him crucified. We, we must preach Christ and him resurrected. We must preach Christ and the transforming work that he does in our hearts. We must preach Christ and the power of a changed life. 
We must preach Christ and him returning in power and in majesty and in worldwide dominion. And so this is what Apollos is lacking. And so it leads us to our next blank, the humiliation of ministry, the humiliation of verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos, again, preaching boldly in the synagogue, but his preaching is lacking the full Christ-saturated power. So Priscilla and Aquila stepped up. Mind you, they are blue-collar missionaries. They're workers with their hands. But they knew about the gospel because they had heard it fully preached from Paul. And they said, you know what? We got to take this guy aside. He might be sharper than us, better educated than us, more polished than us, more eloquent than us, but this guy's missing something. So they pull him aside, and notice how, again, I can't help but see this again, how they just do it together. It's Priscilla and Aquila, that team, that married team. They, they, they had a dynamic marriage. They had remarkable influence. They were strategically mobile. They, they had an evangelistic passion. They were graciously hospitable. And it was this couple that God used to take Apollos aside and to explain to him the way of God more accurately. You know, when I came to seminary, I didn't know everything the Bible taught, but I liked to preach. I had preached a few sermons in my day before I had a chance to really study the Bible. And I remember my first year of seminary, I was preaching in a Bible study, and I was preaching how Paul had never been the Thessalonica, but that he had planted a church there. And I remember preaching the sermon. I was waxing eloquently about how, like, hey, Paul had never been there, but he still planted a church there. How? I don't know, but he just did it, and isn't he awesome? And I remember this seminary student pulled me aside after I preached the sermon. He's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, I didn't think Paul had ever been there. And he was like, he was at least there three Sabbaths. Remember, we studied this just a few months ago. He was at least there three Sabbaths. He might have been there long. He wasn't there long, but he was there, and you said he wasn't there. And I, and I went back and read the text more carefully, and I'm like, oh, you're right. And the next week, I was like, hey, guess what? Paul was there. <laughs> you know, it's like, you have to be willing to be confronted. Even worse than that, I have a friend of mine who came to seminary who was teaching the sermon about the widow who gave of her two mites, and he was preaching, and he preached that this woman gave her two mice. And he was going for it. He was like, and she, all she had, she didn't have one. She had two mice, two mice. And she gave up both mouses to the Lord. And this guy had to pull him inside like, what are you doing? A mite is not a mouse. It's a coin. Now, I mean, you can hear lots of those stories. I see Dr. Barrett back there in the back. I'm sure he's heard a million stories of people who have gone far away from Scripture and it doesn't mean that everybody is an instant heretic, but it's pretty serious if you're not preaching the whole Christ. And this, again, to Apollos' benefit, had godly couples in the church that are more than willing to come alongside him and explain to him. I love verse 26. They, they took him aside. That's why we called the sermon this. They taking Apollos aside. They had the guts. They had the gall. They had the conviction to say, let's take this guy aside and let's just share with him. Evidently, he doesn't know. Let's talk to him. And I love that about 
Priscilla and Aquila. They're not intimidated in the slightest. They're serious about coming alongside this brother to help him out. And my folks, I want a church like that. I would love to have a church that would be like, hey, let's take each other aside. There are times I might speak and say something still, and somebody might need to say, hey, you know what? You misspoke when you said this. You know, I'm more than willing to be corrected. You know, there may be, you may be teaching a small group. You may be teaching at women's Bible study or at, at a men's group or, or, or a youth group or whatever, and someone may take you. That's not the end of the world. It's not like, oh, my word, I've committed the unpardonable sin. It just means like, yeah, I appreciate somebody was listening carefully, wanted to articulate carefully what it is that we're saying. Now, again, I don't want us to overcorrect to where we become the hypercritical church and like, oh, well, there's three things you said this morning that, you know, you, I know I'm, I mispronounce words every message, okay? I get it. <laughs> My grammar's not perfect, okay? So it's, I, I can still be corrected in those areas, but I'm just saying, you know, it's mostly about true scriptural evidences in the Bible that we want to champion in how we do that, but, but let's do it. Let's take each other aside and help each other out. And then notice what happens. Your next blank says the expansion of ministry, the expansion of ministry, verse 27, and when he wished across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who were, uh, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And so we're seeing now the expansion of Apollos' ministry. They had discipled him. They now are sending him out from Ephesus to Achaia. Uh, the Apollo, uh, Apollos planned uh, to cross from Asia Minor to Corinth, which was uh, the mainland of Greek, of, on the mainland of Greece. And the brothers of Ephesus, as, as he's now moving on here, Apollos is moving on, they're going to commend him, right? The brothers of, of Ephesus, in fact, wrote a letter commending him. He's going now back to Corinth for the disciples there in Corinth to welcome him. So they're writing letters of recommendation, which was a common occurrence in the early church. In fact, you see there the, the uh, cross-references given in Romans 16, 1 through 2, 1 Corinthians 16, 10, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 2, Colossians 4, 10. These are all examples of letters that were written by an early church leader to confirm the testimony of a repentant sinner or to commend a newer ministry associate so they would know, hey, this guy is coming from us. You should listen to what it is that he has to say. And so they are now commending Apollos. And, and then we see at the end of the verse how Apollos uh, was, was uh, able to help those through grace who had believed. And so we see there again, there's sovereign grace that was given by God to bring believers into the fold. And they're greatly helped by Apollos when he arrived there. Uh, and by the teaching that happened there, they're greatly blessed by him continuing to teach them. And then, and then we see our next blank, verse 28, says the implementation of his ministry. So the expansion, he's now moving from Ephesus back to Corinth for Apollos, and then we see the implementation of his ministry. Just look at this in verse 28. says, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. So your next blank says, speaking the truth. So he's now implementing all that he's learned, and he's speaking the, the truth, and I would suggest to you in its entirety. He had taken what Priscilla and Aquila had encouraged him with, and now he's ready. It seems obvious that from this point forward, God was using Apollos in a powerful way. While he had been lacking, he's now got the full story of Christ, and now he's preaching it. In fact, hold your place in Acts and just turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 12, because I want you to see how, how mature 
Apollos had become in the way that he's discussed in these other verses. 1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul later, writing to the church of Corinth, says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, I find that amazing for this reason. Apollos is now mentioned here with Paul, Peter, and Christ. And I would say that that's some pretty good company that shows Apollos' maturity in the ministry instead of them saying like, oh yeah, Apollos, uh, he doesn't really have the full story. They're saying, hey, some people were really blessed by Paul. Some people were really blessed by Peter, some by Apollos. And of course, Paul is, is confronting the Corinthians saying you shouldn't be that way. It's not like pick one of your favorite leaders. But I'm just saying the very fact that he's mentioned in that company shows that he is indeed speaking the truth with power and with conviction. That Apollos is now powerfully refuting the Jews in public just as Paul, Peter, and Christ had done. We also see, your next blank, that he's explaining through Scripture. He's explaining through Scripture, the middle of verse 28, showing by the Scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And here's where I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, another reference to Apollos. So again, he's now um, speaking the truth, the full truth, nothing but the truth. He's now also explaining through the scripture, the middle of verse 28, and while Apollos was an eloquent speaker, his competency came from the scriptures. He was now loaded with the full knowledge of all the word of God. And that's why 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7 says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And then Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So again, in context, we appreciate that. He's saying, hey, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's all God's work. But just the fact that Paul is mentioning Apollos with himself. He's like, look, I planted and Apollos watered. I mean, this guy is now a faithful dependable teacher watering the church. This passage clearly shows that Apollos is now showing spiritual truth and maturity, again, from where? From the scriptures. From the scriptures, what the middle of verse 28 says. He wasn't depending on his natural gifts. He wasn't depending on his good looks. He wasn't depending on his brilliant education from Alexandria. He was depending on the word of God. He was just the mouthpiece. He was simply the conduit. He was the channel through which God's word was flowing. And then we see in verse 28, he's preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel, he's preaching what? That Christ was Jesus. We've seen that terminology before. He now knows that he is proclaiming this full gospel message by preaching that the Christ is Jesus. He's preaching the exact same message that Paul preached when he was in Corinth in Acts 18.5 when it says Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when we want to be faithful and accurate in our ministry, then we must use God's word. We don't primarily use science. We don't primarily use logic. We don't primarily use church history. We use the word of God. 
which is inspired, which is inerrant, which is infallible, which is totally sufficient to teach us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the prophet. He is the one who would come and save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Messiah. This is no different than saying that Jesus is the one alone who can save you. And so I love how Apollos is now preaching Christ. He's not just talking about the God of the Old Testament, which is certainly fair game, but he's now talking about Jesus of the New Testament. He's talking about how the new fulfills the old. He's talking about it's not good enough to have a Mosaic covenant down pat, you gotta have the new covenant down pat. And the new covenant comes through the blood of Christ, the fact that he came, he fulfilled the prophecy, he died on the cross, he was raised from the dead, he sits in heaven today at the right hand of the Father praying and interceding for you and for me. My friends, if you're here today and you don't know this Christ, this is the Jesus Christ that we're calling you to. It's not enough, like Apollos, to know a lot about church. It's not enough to know a lot about the Bible. You have to know Christ. You have to not only know Christ, you have to believe in Christ. You have to turn from your sin. You have to turn from your ignorance, from any willful sin, And you have to come to Christ. And this morning, we're asking you to just look at the scripture so that you can see the whole of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know this Christ, we want to invite you today that on this day, you would not leave this place without bowing your knee to Christ, without turning from your sin and realizing that you need the full Christ in order to be truly empowered to live the Christian life. And after we sing our last song, we'll have a few people standing right here. We'd love to visit with you, talk with you, encourage you. For those of us who are Christians, I want you to also be encouraged by this take-home section here at the very end of the sermon. Never be too proud to learn from someone with less training than you. That's so important. So important for us that no matter where you are in your walk with Christ, you would never be too proud to listen to someone with less training as long as they're speaking from the scripture, right? As long as they're speaking from the word of God. Number two, never be too scared to get out there and try it again. Some of you have taught before and it was a disaster. (laughs) Or maybe you felt like, man, I could never do that again. I'm not sure I was accurate. I'm not sure it went well. And if teaching's not your gift, I get it. It's It's not a gift for everybody, but I'm just saying, don't be afraid. I think Apollos, he took it, right? He received from Aquila and Priscilla, whatever they told to him, and he went right back out, and he put it into practice, and he began to be even more faithful in teaching. Never be too scared to try it again. And then third, the church should create a culture of challenging and growing. Love that, that we, we create a culture. It's not like we're trying to catch somebody, but we're always sharpening one another. What we're saying what we're believing, how we're articulating God's truth, that we want to have a culture of challenging and growing together. Let's be willing to take Apollos aside. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at a a passage of scripture that would encourage us, that would challenge us. We see the ending of the second missionary journey, the beginning of the third. We see Paul's faithful ministry And then we see this maturing of this upcoming promising preacher of the truth, Apollos. And just thank you for what we've learned through his testimony and his humility, his willingness to learn and to get back out there and to continue to preach Christ in all of his glory. And I pray that we would constantly be growing. I pray that we would constantly be being informed from the scripture how to preach Christ, to live for Christ, to love Christ, to share Christ. 
Help us as a church as we want to grow in these areas. God, I pray that you would be exalted in our hearts as we sing this closing song, that you would be magnified throughout our week as we want to love you and serve you with all of our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.